I hope that's helpful too. What do you think that you can offer God? Of course, if you're the ardent atheist here, then of course the validity of that question you would somewhat question. But given that still the vast majority of people within this country would say that they believe in God, I again ask, what do you think that you can offer him? I guess very few of us would explicitly put it in those terms. But as you look at your life, as you examine your heart and you examine your mind, as you maybe consider the bigger things of life and of death, and maybe also the existence of God himself, again, the question comes, what do you think you can offer to God? Perhaps you've been, a, let's say, one thing, generous with your finances. You're a little bit above the average. The national average of charitable giving is £29 a year. And you're a little bit above that and you're thinking, yeah, that's good. I've been good before God and before his world. And therefore you equate your kind of the use of your finances into some kind of moral club card points, which you're kind of notching up somewhere that you can swipe through the turnstile of heaven later on. Have you perhaps exercised your power in your workplace, in your relationships? Have you been the tyrannical boss, the bossy husband, the nagging wife, the shouty parents? And you kind of justify yourself, don't you? You look down the road and you know that family and you say, well, I'm better than them. You know, and therefore, metaphorically in your head, you're kind of, you're scanning those club points in again, aren't you? So that, you know, one day they might just help at the turnstile of heaven. Morally, you get, again, you look around the world, don't you? And you see the gunman in, in Canada this week. And you just think, oh, I'm not as bad as them. And there's a whole myriad of other examples. And every time you go, well, I'm just not that bad. And you protect yourself in a sense of self-denial. And say, I'm relatively okay. We might even find ourselves looking down our self-righteous noses clutching at our kind of morality club card, thinking, hey, relatively safe, relatively good, relatively at ease with life in general. And surely you say to yourself, all of that adds up to being enough, doesn't it? Before God? If there is a God, then what I have to offer surely is going to make the cut. Can I ask you, if, if you've, well, I've been saying all of that, think that that comes into any of your thinking at all, even in the slightest, can I ask you, who's the arbiter? Who's the judge who says you've made the cut, that you are good enough? Clutching onto your morality club card, look at all the points that you may have stacked up in your life. There's some pretty good people here. The stuff you've done in the community, that extra few hours you've done at work, you've been a good employee, you've been a good boss, a good wife, a good husband, a good friend. Can you hear me please? Right. They are all wonderful, good things. But who's the judge? Who's going to say that what you have and who you are is enough for God? Enough for God to say, hey, welcome, I love you. Come into my good, eternal kingdom. Who's the judge? You see, if metaphorically you are now holding that kind of merit of you, what you've done, that club card of morality in your hand, then you're the judge. 
You've decided that, that you are good enough for God and you've moulded God into some kind of personal, tame God in your likeness. And that requires a huge confidence, doesn't it, in yourself and in your understanding of who God is. If you've done it consciously, of course many haven't. Many of my friends, they just kind of follow the pack, don't they? Uh, They get in their cars, they live their comfortable lives, but they do so ignoring the one who has given them all of those good things. The great writer C.S. Lewis uh, put it this way. He was writing to a friend. It's in a collection of letters that he wrote to his friends. He encouraged a friend to think like this, saying, One's mind must run back up the sunbeams to the sun. That is, he's saying that uh, the cars, the houses, the education, the money, the work, the power, all of those things that we enjoy and are good things, they are just glimmers. They're just reflections of the great eternal power of the sun itself, of their ultimate source. Of course, he's pointing to God there. And so I may say to you, if you're here today and you're kind of cynical, critical, one's mind may need to run up the sunbeams to the sun. Paul, in the three verses preceding our passage today, had made it clear if you like, how brilliant God was, especially in his son. Do look at those verses. I read some of them out at the beginning. Last week, verse 6, for example, we saw Jesus uh, who humbled himself threefold, down, 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 humbled himself in heaven, verse 6, humbled himself on earth, coming as a, uh, as a baby, verse 7, and in verse 8, he's humbled himself even to death on a cross. His death was, of course, in his control. It was sin-bearing in my place. It was substitutionary. For all the times that I have ignored God or rebelled against him. Down, down, down was the kind of sequence. Then but verse 9, Jesus was super exalted, literally there. Vindicated, rose from the dead, now sits in heaven. He defeated death, he rose again. It's the most historically verified history that you'll ever read. But in so doing... We read there in verse 9, he is given the name which is above every name. The point is, who's the judge? Who's the judge? Verse 10, look at it. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Verse 11, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. He was given this name. It's so significant. Let's look at each each part. Jesus first. It simply means saviour. He lives a perfect life. If you like, the club card is full. He's done everything right. And he's willing to offer that life for your life. It's a swap that is on offer. And he's willing to take the death or the justice that you deserve for those times that you've let God down. And he does that on the cross. Jesus is saviour. He's willing to save you. He's Christ as well. Uh, That is, uh, Christ is the Greek word. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Uh, That is the long-awaited king. Uh, Jesus is essentially the fulfilment of all the things that the Old Testament have been pointing toward. Uh, All the promises, they all come to their fulfilment in Jesus. We've given a book to Elliot today and the subtitle is Every Story Whispers His Name. Everything is pointing to Christ, the long-awaited King. Jesus is the Christ. And he is Lord, we see, lastly. 
He's given the name Lord, and the Jews knew exactly what that meant. It's his God. Lord, it was Yahweh, the, the personal name that God uh, had given himself and revealed it to Moses. Jesus is Lord, he's God, he's saying here. So as Jesus opens his passport, of course, it's, it's hugely impressive, isn't it? Look at the name, it's Jesus, it's Christ, it's Lord. It's a long name. But what does that mean for you and for me? Well, verse 10 and 11, I think, are very clear that every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess. That is, there will be no exceptions. You can't put a date in your diary to avoid this. We'll all bow and recognise. One's mind may need to run up the sunbeam to the sun. Because if you don't, one day you'll be clutching your life. Oh, full of good things and all that you've done. But my question is, will it be enough? Will it be enough? See, you'll either come before Jesus one day, uh, bowing your knee, clutching uh, you know, the club card or the, his life that he has given to you, that you've trusted in his perfect life and his substitutionary death, or you'll come on your own, trembling with inadequacy. Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you've recognised that, if you trusted and put your faith in that gospel, that good news message, then Paul turns now in our passage today and says, you need to work that out. You need to live it out. You need to cash it out. You need to live in grateful response to that gospel. And so we get to our main point. Work out your salvation, verse 12 and 13. Now let me give you a bit of background if you're new to us today. Philippines, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to this small church he's established in a place called Philippi, northeast Greece, to you and me. The church is considered a model church. Verse 12, you'll see a bit of that because they've been obedient to God, it says, despite the opposition that they were facing. But what we might expect coming out of verse 9 to 11 is some great prayer of praise. That would be Paul's normal kind of tack, wouldn't it? It's called a benediction. It's not that though, is there? What we get is the word therefore, right at the beginning of our passage, showing us everything that Paul is about to say is linked to what he has said before. It keeps continuing like his thinking, his logic. So looking back, see what chapter 2, Paul began verse 1 to 4, telling the church to humbly look out to the interests of others within the church. He gives them the example, Christ, in verses 5 through to 11. And it's total care, isn't it? Christ's care for us. It's a total care because he offers us eternal life, salvation in him. He's vindicated at the end. And 12, verse 12 begins... Now, with some new instructions, they're to be lived out into reference of what they've already heard. They've heard the gospel, and so Paul is calling the Philippians to live in response to that saving work. To live with him, essentially, as Lord and Saviour. So Paul calls the Christians to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. But please do note, this is not what we call synergistic, this is not... Us and God working together to try and bring salvation at the end. God does his bit, I do my bit, and that's the end result. No! Jesus Christ is Lord. He does all the work for us to get to heaven. 
And so Paul writes to his dear friends, as he says there, urging them, not only his presence, but now much more his absence, to continue working out their salvation with fear and trembling. They've been obedient to Christ. We see that. Romans 16 puts it this way. It's the obedience of faith. As a result of their faith, they've lived their lives according to God's word. But now, even as problems have come along, and we'll see more of that next week, sorry, two weeks' time, in chapter 3, Paul is urging them to be obedient and to work out their salvation. And this isn't casual. This isn't just kind of tipping your hat at God, you know, once a year, maybe at Christmas, maybe Easter if he's lucky. They're to do so rather with fear and trembling. Now, the words in the original are, are kind of phobos and tromos. Now, we know, we know what those words mean, what, we, what words we get there from phobia and trauma, okay? So work out with fear and trembling. You see, the call of the Christian is not to flippantly or irreverently or occasionally acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. With fear and trembling, it denotes a kind of magnitude, doesn't it? And a weight appropriate to the one that we're going to bow the knee before. My friend has just been on holiday up to Sandringham, uh, you know, who lives there occasionally. And who should he bump into? Well, he even posted a picture of the Queen on Facebook this week. She was there walking around the grounds with a barber jacket, husband, you know. There they were, sort of prancing around, enjoying themselves in the countryside. And she looked very youthful. And that's because the picture that he posted on Facebook was actually 20-odd years old, not realising that actually the Queen that day was in the Science Museum posting her first tweet. The point was, she wasn't there. He was just playing a bit of a joke. But what if my friend actually did meet the Queen in the grounds of Sandringham? What if the Queen then invited him and his family back into the house and said, well, it's half time, why don't you stay here for a week? Why don't you, uh, there's a nice four-poster bed, you enjoy that one, and all the kids go into those ones, and and off you go. Here's the butler, your individual butlers, in fact. They'll cook whatever you want, five courses every mealtime. Here's a Land Rover each as well. Why don't you just go and enjoy the countryside, and here's a ghillie. I don't worry about that, this man who gives the guns out, and all this kind of stuff. Go and enjoy the grouse, and all that stuff. You'd imagine it, can't you? How would my friend and family respond appropriately to that kind of kindness from the Queen? Ingratitude? A kind of a casual acknowledgement? Oh, yeah, thanks, Queen. What about, you know, kind of a sense of entitlement? I pay my taxes, and therefore, that would be absurd, wouldn't it? And rude. There ought to be reverence, wouldn't there? And, and thankfulness. Yeah, but it is the Queen, in a sense, you know, however lovely and warm she appears to be, I've never met her, but you know, she does appear very kind and very generous in that way. Do you not think we all may have a sense of that phobos and traumas, a bit of fear and trembling? It's the Queen! Of course we would. But now imagine, if you can, that the King of all creation steps down from heaven and he humbly serves you And offers his life and his death, through his life and death, the chance to enjoy an eternal life in paradise. How are you going to respond? Uh, 
Let me ask you again, just a bit more personal. Is, is your current response absurd? If you're a Christian here today, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is appropriate reverence and awe. But also take comfort too. Look at verse 13, because we're not left alone in this work. Look at verse 13. For it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And Paul's point here, I think, is that every conscious action, which is that combination between a hidden will within our hearts and the outward work, so the conscious action, Paul is saying that in the life of the Christian, God is working in us to will and to act. And note I said that God is working in us and not with us. It is not a bit of him and a bit of me that gets the job done of verse 12. No, it's God's work in and through us. And it's for his good pleasure and purpose we see, which if we're made in his image, that means it will also be for our good pleasure and purpose as well. Now we all know, if we're Christians here today, uh, that we cannot obtain our salvation if you like this is not what verse 12 and 13 is saying nor does it say that you have your salvation and kind of it kind of hangs in the balance depending on how well you do in the next few weeks and nor does it say oh well you know you've been saved and therefore just chill just do whatever you want now you know don't respond in any way at all no it doesn't say any of those three simplistic ways not at all It's stronger than all of those options. Rather, it's motivational. Yes, it is. But it's utterly secure at the same time. Don Carson, a current scholar, put it this way. and I thought it was very helpful. He said, God himself is working in us both to will and to act. But far from being a disincentive to press on, to live as Christian, Paul insists that this is an incentive. Assured as we are that God works in this way in his people, we should be all the more strongly resolved to will and to act in ways that please our master, God. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Paul says. But practically, how? So it's kind of a conceptual bit, verse 12, 13. Now we go very much more practical, verse 14 through to 18. And I've just put simply on your sheets there, shining like stars. Shining like stars. So the general instruction leads to concrete, practical examples. Look at verse 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Now the complaining word here is a really funny word. I love it. In, in a sense, it's onomatopoeic. Do you know what it means? It basically means that it sounds like it means. And it, it's a word that is a gaguzmon, which is like for grumbling. It's all grumpy, isn't it? It sounds grumpy when you say it. So that's what it is. It's got that sense of uh, kind of feel to it. So is this an issue in the church in Philippi? Now Paul knew that in choosing this word particularly, every ear within the congregation would have kind of pricked up slightly because it would have made a very quick connection to uh, the, the story of the Exodus in the Old Testament. There are obvious allusions here. In the story of Exodus, the people of God, they're trying to escape from slavery in Egypt. They find themselves wandering in the desert. They begin to question their leader, Moses. And what do they do? They grumble. Again, they complain again and again and again. And Paul may be highlighting this to this church because they've begun to perhaps complain and to, to argue, perhaps calling their own leaders into question. 
Now, scholars think, uh, just turn back to chapter 1, verse 1, uh, for example. Scholars kind of think that's why in that verse, in chapter 1, verse 1, that Paul mentions the overseers and deacons. Uh, because they're to know the grace and the peace that is mentioned in verse 2 there. It also may be, if you flip over the page to chapter 4, verse 2, it may also be the uh, part of uh, the disagreement between Euodia and Syntyche in chapter 4, verse 2. Maybe, maybe not. But we do know, don't we, if we're human beings, that people complain and argue. And this has been like the bane of the the church over the last two millennia, all across the world. The way that Paul puts it here, in this context, it suggests that the the complaining, the grumbling soul, if you like, is the expose of perhaps the immature, and maybe even the unsaved within the church. And it's not a pretty picture at all. Many of you will know that uh, I meet some church leaders around this local area occasionally. I've had to visit them sometimes, and pastors and ministers. And let me tell you, it is utterly striking as I meet them. Some of them have nearly been in tears as they shared. Some people in their churches consider it a great gift to the church that they complain. It's their great joy to to complain. In a sense, they justify themselves and say, well, I'm doing it to refine the church. Of course I am. If I don't complain, nothing will change. You know? And they complain and they grumble and they grumble. But there's a very big difference, isn't there, between encouraging critique and damaging complaint. And if you cannot discern between those two, can I just gently suggest you keep your mouth quiet until you do understand. There are churches who have split, lost leaders, because they ignore working out their salvation in the way that Paul prescribes here in verse 14. The church is the, the people, of course, who have been saved. We're the people of the new exodus. There's a good allusion there. And we've been saved by the once-for-all sacrificial Passover lamb, of course, Jesus. We're not to be the children of the first exodus, if you like. Those who grumble and complain again and again. Rather, we are to be those, Paul very positively now turns and says, those who shine like stars. You see that in verse 15. He says, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. And Paul is encouraging here the Christians in the church of Philippi to stand out, to be different, not weird, but strikingly distinctive. Without fault is a strange little phrase there. I'm not sure he's saying be perfect because we know that that is not possible. Rather, not being open to accusation that will demean the church, I think, would be helpful. (coughs) Now, this little phrase, shining like stars, it's a a brilliant phrase. It's picked up again from the Old Testament, particularly Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. Have a look at it later if you want. It says this, the wise shine like the brightness of the heavens or the stars. And lead many to righteousness. You see the brightness of the Christian life. Many of you here. Ought to be so compelling. So attractive. By comparison of the world around us. Paul's argument goes something like this. I think for chapter 2 so far. Christians who live out verse 1 to 4. That is following the example of Christ. Verse 5 to 11. Will be distinctive. They will shine like stars. How? Practically how are they to do that? Verse 16. As you hold out the word of life. 
It's essentially Paul's way of saying, as you hold out the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, to make Jesus known to our friends, our lives and our words are to be refreshingly compelling, bright, brilliant with the gospel. The gospel defining our lives and pouring from our lips. The problem is with so much of the church in this country is that they think how they relate to each other, which is what all this section is about, how they relate to each other within the church is just a matter of indifference. People may even think that they can have a little bit of that kind of grumbling that he was going complaining that Paul was speaking about in the previous verse. And if you think that's okay, consider what you are doing to the church. You're essentially making it a, a, a cultural joke. Because it won't stand out at all. It won't be able to shine. Personally, it's a very dangerous place to be, that critical grumbling spirit. Just read Exodus if you want a warning on that. Now, you get to the end of verse 16, and Paul essentially ties his effectiveness in ministry together with that of the church of Philippi. But he finishes aligning his joy with theirs in the last two verses, verse 17 to 18. It's a great place uh, to finish, and that's where we will finish uh, today. Have a look with me at verse 17 and 18 there. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad, it's a word for rejoice again, joy. I have joy and rejoice with all of you, verse 18. So you too should be glad, rejoice, be rejoicing and rejoice with me. So look at it. It's so concentrated in verse 17 and 18. You get Paul twice sounds in verse 17, that note of joy, glad and joy. I'm joyful and rejoice with you. It's joy everywhere. And Paul then uses this image. It would have been well known to them. I know it's not well known to us because we don't sacrifice many bulls and goats at the top here. But yeah, it, it would have been well known to the people then. This image of sacrifice. The priest would offer a sacrifice of an animal. And then he would offer another sacrifice, or what you call a libation, which is a, a drink offering and pouring over that original sacrifice to God. And what Paul is doing here is he's, he's likening the, the Philippians to the priests as they've offered up their sacrifice of faith, if you like, as they suffered and served for Christ. Paul is now saying, I'm a kind of a libation, I'm, I'm a drink offering that's poured over that. Another sacrifice, if you like. What is he saying? He's, he's saying something like this. Your sacrifice and my sacrifice, they work together. They're complementing each other, if you like. As I languish in jail, which is what he was doing, and writing to you to encourage you, as I have established these churches all around Europe, you are working with me. We are complementing one another as you make the gospel known in your freedom in, the, in Philippi. They have worked together. For Christ's gospel and Christ's glory. And as a a result, verse 17, he kind of has a double flake of joy. And he invites them to enjoy it too. As you turn to verse 18, look at that. Twice there as well. And there's there's rejoicing four times in two verses. And the imperative, the instruction is, is therefore rejoice. Rejoice. It's an instruction, and it's meshed with Paul's joy in his suffering. 
Remember, joy is not that kind of celebrity, white and teeth, you know, kind of vacuous, inane grin that you walk around with, which kind of covers up an internal, you know, kind of uh, angst and all sorts of things. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, but biblical joy is not the removal of tears, but it lives for the promise of no tears. Fellowship in the gospel, which is what Paul is so joyful about here in verse 17 and 18, is at the deepest level rejoicing amidst tears, amidst suffering. But that is the gospel truth planted into the reality of your life and my life and Paul's life and the church in Philippi. The Christian message is not the promise of a pain-free existence. We live in a world that is awash with pain and with suffering. And when your loved ones breathe their last, or when you have to go through the pain of things like cancer, of redundancy, of loss, of loneliness, you know the reality of life, don't you? The Christian gospel is the offer of joy amidst the tears with the promise of the end of tears for all eternity. One day every knee will bow before Jesus Christ the Lord. And if you're a Christian here today, this is the ground and motivation to live and work out your salvation with fear and trembling, yes, shining like distinctive, brilliant, beautiful stars as you hold out the gospel, the saving gospel of truth. Yes, with inevitable tears, but also with this undergirding joy. If you're not a Christian here today, we call this talk either you or Jesus. And I want to ask you, whose, whose life are you going to trust? What have you got to offer God? And is that enough? And are you confident in that? Oh, you may be the CEO of a firm. You may drive a wonderful car, live in a beautiful house. Children might go to the right, proper schools. I want to just turn you to one thing, if I can, at the end of verse 29. Have a look at it, if you can, with me. I'm talking about Epaphroditus here. Paul encourages the church in Philippi. He's going to send him back. He's been very ill. And Paul instructs the church to welcome him in the Lord with great joy, again, and honour men like him. Why does Paul honour Epaphroditus? Because God has had mercy on him, yes. And because he's humbly and sacrificially served God, yes. See, as Christians, as a church here today, we're to honour such men. They may not drive the big cars. They may not live in the salubrious houses. But we honour such men. God honours such men. And my question to close is this. Are you such a man or woman? Have you trusted Christ, his life and his death 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father and loving Lord, you have loved us wonderfully and infinitely by sending us your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He humbled himself to live the life that I cannot live and died the death that I deserve. Now risen and exalted, he reigns. As we were reading earlier, he is Jesus Christ, the Lord. Please help us today to respond to him appropriately, to shine like stars in a world that needs him so much. And if our response today is absurd, help us to look beyond all the good sunbeams that we enjoy and to cast our gaze up those sunbeams to the ultimate source of all good things. May this be true for each of us, and today we pray this may be especially so for Elliot, as he is taught the gospel by his mum and dad. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus, before whom we will all one day bow the knee and confess that he is Christ the Lord. Amen. Well, we're going to finish uh, our service off by singing. If you'd like to turn your sheets or to look on the screen. It is a song which doesn't mention the gospel, but is, a, is, a, is really the most famous response to the gospel. It is the amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Let's stand and praise God together. <laughs>